We would take our Bibles at this time and turn to three passages, one in Matthew 19, one in Mark 10, and one in Luke 18. We'll read the Mark and the Lucan passage, first of all, and then our text in Matthew 19. In Mark 10, 13 through 16, is our first passage, a parallel passage with Matthew and with Luke speaking of Jesus blessing the little children. Mark 10, 13 through 16. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Thus far, Mark chapter 10. Now Luke chapter 18 and 15 through 17. And they also brought infants to him. That's the word, brephos, infants. And they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. In our text in Matthew, in chapter 19, Uh, 13 through 15, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Thus far we read (coughs) these accounts, which are the word of God with regard to Jesus' blessing the little children who were brought to him. The whole context here has to be understood as one of discipleship. Matthew 19 and the other parallel passages are talking about what it is to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth and to heaven if one would call himself a disciple. We just learned of discipleship with regard to God-honoring marriages, marriages which are pictures of Christ and his church, That union, that love, that righteous thing that God has joined together, the one flesh union, which is permanent. This teaching of Jesus on marriage and the discipleship of those who would behave well and honorably uh, in marriage prompted the question that if such were the case, that marriage is this wonderful union and even permanent, there's no loophole, no escape out of it, except for death, if such is the case, it's better not to marry. But Jesus then, not backing off, says there is grace to be a disciple, even in this case, with regard to marriage, first of all, to remain single, or if there is some tragedy and there is biblical divorce, not to remarry, not to see the thing as done, but to honor marriage that God makes till death do you part, and remain single, living for the kingdom of heaven's sake. This is the word of Jesus on marriage. This is those 
uh, or this is the way that people would honor God in marriage. It's that important. But now, what Jesus does here is go on to speak of the discipleships, uh, the discipleship of adults with regard to the children of godly marriages. It's connected, you see, with the first realm of discipleship in marriage, here now with regard to children. Either parents who ought to bring children to Jesus or other disciples who ought to promote the blessing of children by not hindering their being brought to Jesus, Jesus is speaking now. Now that would include all of us. All of us here, whether we're single or married, have children or not, or just have grandchildren, we are called here to learn the discipleship of those who would see as important the children that Jesus would bless of marriages that are covenantal. It's a wonderful verse. It's a great and poignant moment in Jesus' ministry. So tender. Jesus has brought these children and the disciples are saying no and Jesus is saying yes and he takes them in his arms and he, he hugs them, no doubt smiles to them, maybe coos with them, who knows what he does, but the important thing is he blesses them. And his, this is our Jesus. This is the Jesus we love and the Jesus of us and the little children that are blessed of him. So let's consider Jesus blessing the little children. There are other um, passages and uh, other passages, some of which we read, and also one we considered in Matthew 18, that speak of children who are blessed and children who are a blessing to us and we should receive them because they're an example to us. You have to be like a little child and so on. But here in Matthew 19 is an outstanding instruction of Jesus not just on the example that children are, but on the status of children of believers. We want to talk of this status of the children, where Jesus himself highlights this when he says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's reminding the disciples of the status, their position in the covenant of grace. And that's what I mean by this. As we talk about the meaning of Jesus blessing these little children, I want to talk about their position. They have a position to these children, Jesus says so, such that before God they are viewed as his covenant children. Children are included in the covenant of grace. That these were covenant children is clear. In the first place, these are brought, little children in our text, from which we get the word pice. They're the ones who are to be those who are taught with Christian pedagogy. They're the, the children of different ages. But brephos, the Greek word in Luke 18, as I mentioned, points out to us that they could be infants as well. We don't know how many children were brought to Jesus, we don't know just their ages, but they had to be brought, didn't come of themselves. They were brought by parents or maybe just the mothers or maybe other guardians. 
to Jesus. And Jesus says of these, of such is the kingdom of heaven. These were Jewish mothers and fathers, no doubt about it. This was the land of the kingdom of heaven, Judea and Galilee, those provinces, those major provinces. And in them, the majority of the people were Jews, mothers and or fathers or guardians who would be concerned about the things of the old covenant especially. And now they're impressed by Jesus, who seems to be a great prophet and a priest. And so they're bringing them, the children of the covenant. They know they're the children of Abraham, they and their, their children. They're bringing them to Jesus to bless them. This was a case, the case that uh, <clears throat> would often be uh, found, we say, we're, her, we're told in, in Jewry, that parents would bring their children, little or maybe a little older, to godly men, to prophets, and especially to priests as they ministered in the temple and the Herodian temple to bless them. And this is the significance of the parents here as they're bringing their children to Jesus. They cared to bring their children that Jesus would lay his hands on them. As we read in the parallel passages, this was for a blessing and that Jesus might pray upon them and otherwise favor them. They were these people who were bringing these little ones who did not come of their own. Maybe they're infants here, as I say. Certainly they're little enough to be taken in Jesus' arms and brought to Jesus that he might put their hands on, his hands on them and pray and bless them. Now this is significant. We should know this. When Jesus would bless them, symbolized by laying on of the hands and otherwise addressing them, this was not just him saying nice things to them, not just saying of little Johnny or Sally, what a pretty little boy you are, a girl you are, and what an angelic face you have, and what a, what a cute child, and what's the name of the child, and I'm sure that you're blessed by having this child. No, Jesus has more than nice things to say to people. He has, in fact, blessing on his mind with regard to these people. In fact, this is what Mark brings out in chapter 10 and verse 16. He actually blesses them. Now, to bless is to speak well. When God blesses us, he speaks well of us, meaning he favors us. He pronounces favor. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's pronouncing the favor of God upon these little ones of the believing parents. He's speaking his promise to them. In fact, he's conferring blessing upon them as only he can do. When a minister would, would bless the people or the pope blesses the people, they cannot confer a blessing or impart a blessing. We're not saviors. We're not blessers, but we communicate through the means of preaching and so on, and you do too as parents, what God does and God alone confers and imparts. 
This blessing is symbolized by the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands would be a symbol of the fact of a spiritual thing being happening to the children on whose heads or whatever uh, Jesus' hands were laid. Now, this is the blessing of God's covenant, his fellowship. It's a great blessing. It's the blessing of blessings, the only blessing there can be. We speak sometimes too loosely, I think, of the blessing of beautiful day or the blessing of good food and drink and shelter and, and a warm fire on a cold day. But really, those, are, those things, even good ones, are not blessings. Blessings come through the mediation of Jesus. And in fact, you can have many good things and not be blessed, but cursed. You can be cursed in your house. Cursed are the wicked in their house, the Proverbs uh, says in chapter 3. Blessed is the habitation of the just, even if we're as poor as church mice. Blessing is from the word of God the great blesser of his people, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the blessing that comes to us and our children, as many as God will call. Blessing, no doubt, has to be. That's linked with everything about Jesus, the blesser of his people. Blessing linked to the cross. Jesus is thinking about the fact that he will die for these children. He will bless them now and he won't take away this blessing because this is a free blessing. It's a grace blessing, something they don't deserve, even though we might call them little angels and untainted by sin. That's not the case. Jesus knows that. He gives grace with the blessing. Blessing it will be when he goes to hell for people like this, for children like this. And then when he rises from the dead, that they might live, and when he lives and ever lives to make intercession for them, blessing them from heaven. Blessing, he gives. This is a wonderfully significant event. These little children are taken into the fellowship of God. They are justified. They're sanctified. They're glorified in principle everything that heaven can give. In fact, beloved, I, I think that this ought to be understood here as Jesus not blessing them even for the first time, though it may be, but I believe it's biblical to say that Jesus is adding blessing to blessing here. These children are being acknowledged as blessed, and they're going to be blessed now more for his sake, that he's Adding blessing to blessing uh, can only be surmised, but no doubt it's not the case that they only become children of God here, for Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. These little ones were children of God. They were blessed. Now they are blessed by Jesus himself in this transition from old to new covenant. And so that great things are imparted through this additional blessing he gives to them. And blessing he does give according to the covenant of grace. Now, what is that? Let's just dissect that for a moment. Why are we saying over and over that the blessing comes because the status of these children is their covenant children? 
Well, in the Old Testament, beloved, God always saved believers and their children. God saved the seed of the woman through Adam and Eve, Abel, and then Seth, the replacement, the line of God's fellowship and favor. He was never a God who would save anything except families. He would save individuals, to be sure, but his normal way of saving is through godly marriages and godly seed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, the seed of at least one in a believing family, one who's a believer, is holy. They are set aside. They are federal covenanted children. Besides that, the promise to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children after you and the generations, is fulfilled expressly in the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the New Testament church, when God says the new covenant is all about the progress of the gospel, the expansion of the gospel to the nations not only, but still includes the children. The promise is unto you and to your seed after you, to as many as the Lord our God shall call. This is why Jesus blesses the children of these believing parents. He is the mediator of the new covenant of grace, which is a family covenant, as was the Old Testament covenant of grace. Now, Jesus saves the Jews who are given faith to believe and their children, and he also saves believing Gentiles, that's you and I, and our children, God's elect from all the nations. I want to address an elephant in the room, perhaps, for some of you. We're saying, but not all our children are saved, nor must we assume that all of our children are saved, and when we bring them for baptism, we can't be presumptive about their regeneration. Well, Jesus doesn't say that either. He doesn't say all of our children are saved or that all of the children that are brought to him are necessarily saved, but notice what he says. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say such are children of the kingdom, but of such. From among them there will be my children. That's why I bless them. That's why you are to bring them to me. Of such salvation, this is what we know. And this is what we know as heirs of the Protestant Reformation. Salvation is not just because we belong to a Christian home or to a church or to a pope who says we're saved. Salvation is not about DNA. Salvation is about grace. And the covenant of grace happens to include happily believers and their children so that God chooses his own from among us and he saves his own from among us. Hallelujah. One thing I want to point out that is the outstanding thing here. The parents do not bring their children to the high priest or to any other holy man in Israel. They only have eyes for Jesus. They might have brought their children to high priest, 
And we don't know if they're thinking that Jesus is the Messiah, but they know that something is important about him, and certainly this is brought out because we are being led here to know that something is important about Jesus. And what is that that's important for us and our children? Why should we bring our children to Jesus? Why should we make the effort? Here's why. Because salvation, beloved, you know, is only in Jesus. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to be blessed. There's not two high priests or three prophets or 14 Mohammeds, but there is one Jesus who dies for sinners, lays the groundwork of the justification of sinners, from heaven pours out his spirit and gives faith to apply the redemption that's accomplished on Calvary. We bring our children to Jesus. No other person will do. No other blesser, no other promiser, no other savior will do. And again, we don't know if the parents fully realized Jesus' status. They weren't, we're not, we're not sure. But they bring their children to Jesus, and it's a good sign that they did know something of Jesus' uniqueness among all the prophets they ever heard and all the holy men there ever was. And certainly this is an example to us to encourage us to bring our children to Jesus. Now, I want to consider in my second point what I call the existence of henchmen and heathen and heretics and hypocrites. It's kind of a nasty thing, isn't it? Talking about heathen and henchmen and heretics and hypocrites. Now, why am I doing that? Why is your servant marring the beautiful scene of Jesus and the little children? Well, been led there by the text. Jesus himself is not happy here, at least at first. He's happy with the parents. He's about to bless the children, but he's not happy with his disciples. We're being hindrances to the blessing of the children by saying to the parents in one way or another, don't do that. Don't waste the master's time, and they were rebuking the parents. They were rebuking the children, but when they brought the little children to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray, his disciples rebuked them. And that would be the parents who were bringing the children. And so this greatly displeased Jesus he wasn't finding anything to excuse his disciples here. He wasn't saying, oh, you just don't understand. And he wasn't being flattered because maybe the disciples were saying, Jesus is too busy for this. Don't waste his time. They, they probably were saying something like that. He's simply greatly displeased, not happy, angry, angry. 
That naturally leads us to think of all the other ways that people would not want children to be brought to Jesus. And that's why this point. Like heathen. We live in this world, beloved. Heathen. Heathen are unbelievers. That's what I'm saying by heathen. Both Jews and Gentiles, unbelievers. These have no regard for God or salvation except to regard him as non-existent, one among many gods, or as unnecessary. That's what people think of God, who are unbelievers. You realize, this is the world we live in. I don't think much of God at all, and these are under God's wrath and curse, and they need God's blessing, but they do not think they need God's blessing, and certainly do not think to go to Jesus for a blessing. They imagine they're okay. And their children, they bear the sad consequences of the parents, the heathen parents' unbelief. If they have them, they do all in their power, in fact, to prevent them from being brought to Jesus or just to Jesus. Now, this is the reality. Most people, I would say, in Comstock Park and wherever else in this world are not bringing their children to Jesus because they have this low view of Jesus or they have higher views of others that they would bring their children to than they have of Jesus. So it's not far-fetched to say that one option for them with regard to their children conceived in the womb is Let's just bring them to the abortion clinic because they're not convenient. Let's do away with them. Or let's bring them, if we have them, and if they're convenient enough for us, to the public godless schools to teach open-mindedness. Let's bring them to the daycare centers. Let's bring them to the liberal churches. Or let's bring them nowhere. But wait until the children choose where they want to go, how they want to be blessed, how they want to identify, what surgery they need to change their sex. People don't bring children anywhere hardly anymore. They follow children. I know. Practically speaking, you've got to bring children when they're little, but as they get older and their will is asserted, they just follow them. And that's called parenting. That's called heathenism in the generations. Cursing in the generations. We see this. Besides, this kind of a text, with it seems so nice and it seems so endearing of Jesus and the little children. It can't be that Jesus is really blessing them to save them or to add to their salvation and to assure that they will be saved and brought to heaven because, after all, these are little children and they don't need to be saved. They're just little children. They're angels. They're all going to heaven. They're cute, angelic, and sinless. 
no such thing as original sin. Those are the heathen. What about in the church? Not heathen because they confess faith. Not heathen, but heretics still in the church. We don't think there's a need to bring little children maybe to Jesus because these ones are already saved and whether they're in covenant homes or not, everyone goes to heaven who's before the age of accountability. That's called universalism. The fact that at least children, to this degree it's universalism, it's universal for children. Children, before they come to the age of accountability, they're in. And God is merciful and he would not hold responsible children who don't know their right from their left and all are only following the example of their parents. The Bible says, in Adam all die, Romans 5, no exceptions, children included. Psalm 51, the psalmist explains this is a reason for his individual sins, and the reason is that he's conceived in iniquity. The Christian doctrine is that the whole human race is lost and going to hell because of the sin of Adam, born in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we sinned with him. And unless there's atonement, there's blessing of Jesus. But the heretics say, no. There is a way out for children and simply the way of death if they die in infancy or die a little later. Because God is merciful. The way out is the God of mercy. The God of mercy. Now, I do want to say something here that might be controversial. Uh, we're not above having to be controversialists, you know. So, for example, the Baptists. The Baptists deny the significance of this text. They have to. Because to them, they, there is no children, there are no children that are included in God's covenant. There is no promise to them, as it was in the Old Testament, that among the physical seed of Abraham, there would be a seed, a godly seed. That's all changed, they say, in the New Covenant. And I say it does not. They say it's changed, now it's up to the individuals to choose, and so they deny the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace that it could be possibly legitimately put upon our children. This plays out in the raising by the Baptists of those children. The raising of those children is the raising of heathen, no different than the ones who are not believers. They might be in a more advantageous situation because, I'll grant this, the Baptists would teach the children the truth and so on, but they consider them to be unregenerate. And those who are not with them, believers, and they wait and they wait and they call them to come to Christ and to choose for him, which, of course, we all do. 
But the difference between the Reformed, the Presbyterian, and the Baptist is that we believe that before the children come to Jesus, Jesus comes to them. And before the children are of an age of accountability, we bring the children to Jesus, recognizing that God comes to us and visits us in mercy, even before we can know our right from our left and up from down. And this is the beauty of salvation, the picture of grace in God's saving little ones who are born without their knowledge in Adam and are also received, as our form for baptism says, without their knowledge into God's embrace. Here's a picture of it. Imagine if those among those little children, and it is the case, it's true, with little infants, they don't know what's happening. But Jesus is blessing them. Jesus loves the little children. They are brought to Jesus. Jesus himself opens his arm to them. And they don't know what's going on. But God does. This is why the covenant status here of the children is everything with regard to our ground for infant baptism. This is what our catechism says is the ground and all the other creeds. It's the status of the children, not the worthiness of the children, but the covenantal status. Again, not saying that every child is an elect child or believing child or regenerated. The point is that God promises to us and our children that he will save us together and we are to act as those who believe this wonderful promise. Baptists are wrong, and yes, we're not saying they're all going to hell, but their view, denied by this text all by itself, and all of the other texts in the book of Acts that say that families are saved and so on, is heretical, wrong. It's against the truth of the church that's been brought from the New Testament times all the way through the Reformation. The Belgian Confession reminds us to detest the error of the Anabaptists, not just the fact that they denied the existence and the legitimacy of state, the government, and being involved in it. That was part of the Anabaptist error. But especially the error of their not regarding the children that are given to them as God's children. They're not giving them the sign and the seal of the undoubted thing that God does among his own, saves them and is gracious to them. This is the beauty of this text. Jesus blesses not those who come to him, not those who decide for Jesus. He blesses the little children who are brought to him. Some may say, well, there's no baptism here. There's no water. One has preached a famous sermon, brought to Jesus but not to the font, a Baptist. But that's irrelevant here. The Bible says Jesus didn't baptize, but he does the thing that is signified by baptism. He blesses the little children of the believing parents. Now, I'm not trying to be overly... Uh, 
argumentative here. Don't believe that for a minute. But it's right in the text. A beautiful thing that many miss of the sovereignty and the grace of God and salvation. But then there's hypocrites. Hypocrites can't bring their children to Jesus. They say one thing, even in the church of Jesus Christ, but everything about the direction of their life says another thing. So maybe they bring their children to catechism or Sunday school, but then they themselves, the rest of their life, are going another way and away from Jesus. And the little children pick up on that. And how often it is that we ourselves as parents shake our heads in shame when we remember the times that we were not faithful and the children learned a bad thing. They learned a self-righteous thing in our self-righteousness. They learned an ugly thing in our ugliness. They learned something that needed to be unlearned. We hindered them from the blessing of Jesus. Then there's henchmen, and that is what I think these disciples were acting like here. And I mean by this, those kinds of people who are like thugs who gather around a gang leader, and they keep their gang leader protected, and they're the ones who seem to be saying here that, hey, Donna bring the children here. You got a problem? You come somewhere else. These children are not worth our master's be, uh, attention. And so, don't waste his time. This is what I say is what characterizes people who think there are qualifications that people need to be brought to Jesus and to approach into the inner sanctum of the arms of God. It's for all Pharisees and all those who are dogmatic and excluding people who just haven't said it right, done it right, repented enough, or whatever. Henchmen, thugs around the gang of a sect and not around the real Jesus. Theirs is a severe Jesus and their doctrines reflect the severity of their own self-righteousness. And with all such heathen, heretics, hypocrites, and henchmen, Jesus is greatly displeased. Greatly displeased. That's what the parallel passages bring out. This is not a happy moment for Jesus and his disciples. They're not learning the lesson of what it is to be blessed of him. Are we? Are we? Final point. Of holy parents and all those who are blessed of Jesus. Holy parents, make sure you bring the little ones, the infants, the toddlers, the little lambs of the flock, to Jesus. How do you do that? Have them. Have the little children to be blessed of Jesus. You might think, we don't want to have them, or maybe not right away, or not as many as 
as uh, would be inconvenient, whatever, whatever it is, but you have them. You have the children that God gives. Have them. And wait on him to give you the conception. Wait on him. And as you bring them to Jesus to be blessed, you can be sure you're going to be blessed and all those around you are going to be blessed and you'll have the wherewithal to care for these children and you'll have the, the stamina and so on. Have them. And then pray for them even before you have them. Pray for those children. You see all this responsibility here following upon the knowledge of the sovereignty of God is the responsibility of those to bring their little ones to Jesus. And then you bring them to baptism, expressing your faith in the sovereign covenant grace of God. And then we instruct them and we call our children to faith in Jesus, to conscious faith, to appropriate the things of heaven. Of course, you bring them to church, you educate them as Christians so that they can live in this world and be Christian historians and Christian government officials and Christian this and Christian that, but Christian in everything, so that whatever they do, they do to the glory of God. In yours, let it be a life of holiness and teaching the word of God by word and by example, and call them to come to Jesus, to believe in him, to obey him. That's how you bring children to the Savior. And maybe a lot of it for some of us now is telling the children, forgive me, I haven't been perfect not only, but I've led you away from Jesus. I haven't been a good example. And that, if nothing else, will convince the child will convince them that the Holy Spirit is a slayer of adults too and convicts us all of sin. We all need grace. There's a promise that God will bless. We ought to know here that the little children, even infants dying in infancy, is a reflection of the fact that if our little children die in infancy, they go to heaven. This is not universalism. This is faith in God's promise. The Canons of Dort brings this out. We should not doubt that if our children die in infancy, God will save his own from them. We leave that with God. We leave that with God. We have not any fear that God will save his own from among our midst and take them to heaven. God will use us. That's another promise we have. He will use us. He says, bring the children to me. Be a part of the happy church, even if you don't have children. That's engaged in making the way clear for the ones who need grace like we all need grace. Children and helpless ones and sinners and the like. God will use us and God will use the preaching. And we fail, but God will not fail. And look what happens when the little children are blessed in our midst. As the other texts bring out, not this one, 
emphasis the status. The other texts bring out, as did Matthew 18 that we considered, that when the children are blessed, we have examples of humility, of grace, of complete dependence in our children on everything they need. We have examples in our midst of what we ought to be like. Here are living examples of cuddly ones who are needy ones, who are, are parent-dependent ones of what it is to be dependent on God. It's hard work. It's hard work to be a parent, even a grandparent, though I suppose it's a little easier. You don't have all the sleepless nights. But those who have children and those who are expecting children, those who would marry in the Lord and wait for the blessing of children in your marriage, take heart. Oh, the blessedness of the community that opens the gate wide not hindering the children from coming to Jesus, but bringing them to him together. Blessed of God, recipients of his mercy, Jesus will be greatly pleased. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us, your covenant people, your needy people. We believe, Lord, Work faith through the preaching. We might hear it again and again and again and take it in as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word, as older ones desiring the meat. Feed us, Lord. Feed us on the water of life, the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the word that preacher Jesus has preached tonight. Preacher Jesus, greatly pleased even with us because he would honor his own work and his grace shown to us. Hear our prayers and receive our praise for Jesus' sake. Amen.